This is Lock and Code, a Malwarebytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. This week, we're going to talk about last week, starting with the news. On Malwarebytes Labs, we warned readers about a surge in brute force attacks that have increasingly targeted Open Remote Desktop Protocol, or RDP, ports. The uptick in these old-fashioned attacks, in which hackers input countless pairs of usernames and passwords until gaining entry, can be traced to the pandemic. With more employees working from home, more company resources are being accessed remotely, and thus more remote desktop protocol ports are left exposed online. A lot more, actually. From 3 million exposed RDP ports measured in January to more than 4.5 million in March. To protect against brute force attacks on RDP ports, businesses should limit the number of open ports, restrict access to only those who need it, and enhance security of the port and the protocol. And employees should remember to never reuse passwords. Those protection methods may sound simple. And that's because the attacks are simple, too. They often boil down to nothing more than, if at first you don't succeed, try, 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 try. This is the next 30 minutes, folks. There's no show today. It's just me saying try, try, try. Okay, I'm kidding. Try again. Our threat intelligence team unveiled findings from its three-month investigation into a malicious browser locker campaign. Browser lockers are deceitful web pages that trick users into believing they have a system-wide infection on their machine, and that the only way to fix the issue is to call the phone number listed on the screen. Of course, there is no real infection, and the phone number leads instead to a group of scammers who want to take the money of unsuspecting victims. The latest campaign that we found involves at least 50 obscured malicious links being shared on Facebook. Users who engage with those links are first taken to a legitimate Peruvian news site in which threat actors have taken advantage of a cross-site scripting vulnerability that allows for an open redirect. Victims are then served a browser locker webpage that changes its appearance depending on their operating system, with an animation of a fake system scan and a bogus, time-sensitive threat of deleted files. The threats are all fake, yes, but they look real, and that's why they're successful, putting an unfortunate spin on fake it till you make it. Finally, we asked why managed service providers, or MSPs, should have to rely on non-integrated cybersecurity solutions for their jobs. The short answer, they shouldn't. Modern MSPs utilize a broad software suite that makes fixing and managing endpoints resemble a 1950s prediction of the home of the future. MSP workers don't drive to physical locations to fix IT issues. They do it remotely. They don't rely on people to hand over data. They have that data automatically fed into their workflows. And they don't force themselves to clock in to keep track of accurate billing and invoices. They automate it. Further helping MSPs is the fact that all of these disparate functions can be integrated into one software platform, meaning there's just one login to control every part of their business. Except, strangely enough, 
cybersecurity. That's right. For many MSPs, the cybersecurity part of their very much cybersecurity job still requires separate applications, separate logins, and separate data export settings. That makes the MSP's job seem a little less like the Jetsons and a little more like the Flintstones. It was weird that America simultaneously broadcast two cartoons about families living at faraway points on the space-time continuum, right? Like, one team came to its TV network pitch meeting totally prepared, and the next team just hung over. Said, um, we, we, made, this, we made the same show but opposite. No, trust us, it's going to be amazing. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be in space, and one of the characters will be named Mr. Spacely. Yeah. In cybersecurity news across the world, the Associated Press reported that U.S. officials blamed Iran for a recent voter intimidation scheme in which Democratic voters in key battleground states received threatening emails coercing them to vote for Donald Trump. Oh, look at this. Another attempt to have me joke about the U.S. election. Just eight more days, David. Just eight more days. ThreatPost told readers that phone call transcripts and personally identifiable information relating to prescription drug users in the U.S. were leaked by the pharmaceutical giant Pfizer. I thought Pfizer made a pill for leaks. Emergency Live detailed claims from the cybersecurity firm CrowdStrike that hackers in China have targeted COVID-19 vaccination labs in Japan. CrowdStrike's Asia-Pacific director said that government-led espionage efforts are intensifying to achieve the goal of developing COVID-19 vaccines before other countries. So really, this is like a cross-country test peak in the world's biggest classroom. The Verge wrote about a deep fake ecosystem that researchers recently discovered on the messaging app Telegram. By interacting with a series of AI-powered bots, Telegram users have been requesting fake nudes online, feeding the bots images of women found on social media. Guys. 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 Okay. All right, guys. Guys, no. Finally, ZDNet reported that the U.S. National Security Agency published research that details the top 25 cybersecurity vulnerabilities currently exploited by Chinese state-sponsored hacking groups. So the NSA is in the publishing game, eh? Just, uh, just dropping reports about cybersecurity vulnerabilities? Next thing I know, you're going to tell me the NSA has a podcast. Our main story today concerns Cybersecurity Awareness Month. This once-a-year campaign, happening now, began in 2004 as a joint effort between the National Cybersecurity Alliance and the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. The intent back then was simple. A collaboration between government and industry would give the American public simple tips to stay cybersecure, almost like a modern version of telling folks to replace the batteries in their smoke alarms. Over time, though, participation in Cybersecurity Awareness Month grew. Every October, employers roll out renewed cybersecurity trainings for employees. Maybe this month, your employer has rolled out a 
phishing email test. Maybe they've developed a training session on two-factor authentication. Or maybe you've gone through exercises about creating strong passwords. This is good. Sure, a once-a-year checkup on cybersecurity best practices is a little less frequent than we, a cybersecurity company, would like. But you take what you can get, you know? Still, while the value for employee education is clear, the value of Cybersecurity Awareness Month for the consumer is a little less clear. Obviously, everyone does not work at a company that participates in Cybersecurity Awareness Month, so the takeaways may feel a little more disparate. For instance, Maybe I heard a long radio advert about preventing digital identity theft. And maybe I read an article or two about safely making online purchases. But is that enough? Will I remember it? Will I act on it? To help us better understand the value of Cybersecurity Awareness Month for the consumer, we're talking today with Jamie Court, president of the nonprofit advocacy group Consumer Watchdog. Jamie, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be with you. Jamie, to help our listeners understand a little bit more about you and about Consumer Watchdog, can you just explain your background, your role, and the advocacy group's role? Yeah, well, Consumer Watchdog's been around since 1985. We've been fighting corrupt corporations, crooked politicians since then. It started with a ballot measure in California called Proposition 103, which regulated the insurance industry from top to bottom at the ballot in 1988 and has saved literally $150 billion, that's with a B, for consumers, according to the uh, Consumer Federation of America. And we've branched out since then. We enforce that law. It's still We're still the only state in the nation that doesn't charge people based on their zip code. Mm-hmm. We have, have kept uh, auto rates relatively flat because we put elected insurance commissioner in charge, and he's got to approve or deny rates. We've branched out since into a lot of other areas, and one of them has been online privacy and cybersecurity. Around 2000, we were very involved in financial privacy reform. We were involved in the California Consumer Protection Act, which was passed in 2018, which creates new privacy safeguards. And we've done a lot of work on cybersecurity in the context of automobiles. We put about a big report, actually about this time last year, I think it might have been Cybersecurity Month, where we uh, talked about how dangerous it is that cars are wirelessly connected to the internet, and at the same time, those connections run to the safety critical systems of the car, largely without air gaps. So uh, hackers uh, could tap in to those wireless connections and take over cars. And we, uh, we showed how, how many hacks that have happened, how the danger of cyber security threats to uh, the new connected cars. And we used the uh, opportunity of Cybersecurity Month as, as a way of educating the public about that. And in fact, we're gonna break a little news now. We are going later this month, probably next week, going to release the 2020 uh, Connected Car Report, which shows the threat to all the top models, the top 10 models from car and driver, how many of them are connected uh, wirelessly and to the safety critical systems in the car and how easy they are to hack. And I'll preview the big reveal. We, we actually hacked a car. We're going to put that video on YouTube. We, we, oh, we actually hacked into one of those cars. So that's been our uh, cybersecurity educational opportunity this year. Let's get right into it. We're going to start kind of broad here, right? And like everything you said here, consumer watchdog, looking out for the consumer, doing a lot of work, you know, activating the public, investigating consumer issues, corporate misbehavior. Sometimes, like you said, also even bringing legal action. Here, we're summing it up. You, you represent the consumer. And so from that perspective, to you, what is Cybersecurity Awareness Month even about? You know, in, in looking at things like 
who has it helped and and has it raised awareness in a considerable way well i think it is an opportunity for companies and for groups to raise awareness it's 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 just another opportunity that that has to be made use of and i think it is made use of i think people want to know uh, that they're at risk and when they're told something about their uh, risk, they take notice. And I guess Cybersecurity Month is, is just an, an opportunity to organize events, organize uh, reports, organize tests if you're an employer, to make people aware of, of, of how, how at risk they are. And I think this year, actually, it may have suffered a bit um, because of the focus on COVID in the mainstream media. On the other hand, a lot of people are home, they have downtime, maybe they're more uh, ready to listen to the messaging that uh, groups and employers are putting out. Obviously here, someone like, like Consumer Watchdog is, is looking out for the consumer. Who else is joining you in this? Is, it, is, it, you know, is there a stable of folks out there, you know, news outlets who reach out to Consumer Watchdog during this month or other advocacy groups that, that you work with? Who else out there is, is going to bat for the consumer during this specific awareness campaign? Actually, I haven't seen much in the not-for-profit sector this year. I would say Common Sense Media usually does some stuff, and other other groups will ordinarily use it as an opportunity to put out reports, but I haven't seen much activity this year. I'm, I'm suspecting it's because of COVID and because there's less you know, strategic planning maybe on, on behalf of groups because the, the COVID crisis threw, threw the not-for-profit sector into a, a disarray. Usually there is quite a bit of activity though. There are usually, you know, groups will organize whatever cybersecurity report they have to come out this month. They will, if they can, punk someone and, and do it, you know, show how easy it is to, to <laughs> fish or to get someone's email. But, you know, these are pretty serious times with the election, with the COVID crisis. I think everybody's focused yeah. on November 3rd. And I think cybersecurity must, might have suffered a little for that. I can anecdotally say that personally, right, my, my own mind has been scrambled. Right. Like I, I work, you know, when I'm not hosting this podcast, I, I write for the Malwarebytes Labs blog, which is a independently run, you know, cybersecurity online privacy blog. And every month, every cybersecurity awareness month, right, we push out blogs, we update old ones, we try and give advice on things that are happening that are pertinent. As an example, we, we wrote one about how to safely shop online because Prime Day happened recently. Right. So that's a clear, you know, intersection there. And at the same time, that felt like a real struggle to like get that piece out and up online because there are so many other things that are just happening in the day-to-day, like you said, like coronavirus, like just the general anxiety about an election coming up. I do understand people are, are kind of burnt out. People are, are exhausted. People are worried. And I think that leads to the next question actually really well here, which is how do we measure you know, what the average consumer is taking away from this month? Like I said, I, I write for the blog and I like to think, right, that that the things that I write provide advice and that the things that I write actually do help folks out. They raise awareness. But other than looking at like, okay, these are, these are page views, right? I, I, don't know, I don't know how to measure whether or not the consumer is coming away with actionable advice that they actually take into their lives. And so I wanted to pose that question to you. Do you know if there's a way to measure, you know, if, if the consumer is, is really taking what we're saying, is it something as simple as talking to consumers or is it just kind of looking at how the conversation has evolved since 2004, you know, when, when this month started? What I look at is, have you pierced the culture with mm-hmm. some piece of information? I remember a few years ago, we put out a report, this first report on how Alexa and Echo 
eavesdropped on your conversations. And it was a report where we looked at the patents for Alexa and Echo and showed how they have these diagrams where they have the device and then they have the, the room of the kid is in it and what's on the bookshelf and the baseball glove. And, and they, they actually patented the device surveils the room. They, they talked in one of the patents about how they can hear ambient sound and, and detect kids' noise in the house. And we've put out these patents to show that Alexa, at least by design, was equipped to listen when it's supposed to be off and to surveil people's houses. And it, it made a huge impact. Uh, initially, actually, we put it out at the end of the year, I think it was December. It was on CBS Evening News. It got a little bit of action, but then it wasn't enough. It was like at the end of the year, don't, if it was around Christmas, we did it to try to show, you know, if you're buying this, it's dangerous. It, it didn't make a huge impact. I mean, it got, got coverage. But then in February, I believe, the New York Times put it on the front page. And then Saturday Night Live did a joke about it on uh, weekend, weekend Update, where yeah. Michael Jay said a consumer group found that Alexa listens in. And that's why I get these emails all the time for this, this antacid. <laughs> anyway, I knew when Saturday Night Live did a joke about it, it, it made an impact. And just was two days ago, I was doing a debate on Prop 24, which is this new privacy protection in California that everybody should vote for. Mm-hmm. And one of the people on the debate mentioned, yeah, you know, these smartphones are they're like surveillance devices. They listen. Does the initiative do anything to attack that? Mm-hmm. So, you know, when it becomes part of a cultural dialogue, when it hits Saturday Night Live, that's when you know you made an impact. And it's, it's an intangible way of figuring it out. But but I think people know that. That's so funny that you mentioned it that way, because I actually spoke to two journalists last week, separately, right, about the role of journalism in cybersecurity and the way one of the journalists, Alfred Ng at CNET, measured how public awareness had changed. Is he said the exact same thing. He says, you have to look at the memes. You have to look at what people are joking about in a way that, it's such common knowledge that firing off a joke will be universally laughed at. And he was talking about surveillance and and here we're talking kind of similarly, right? We're talking about potential for surveillance of a smart speaker that is working in tandem to be a listening device. It also kind of lines up pretty well with, I think last week there, there were announcements that there's a new, I think, Nest device or a new Ring device that can fly around in your home and yeah and so that obviously brings about concerns and that brings about fears and like you said that that is a good way to measure you know are we at a different place than we were before and i think you're right i think we are i wanted to go back and also get a better understanding of how consumer watchdog has interacted with or just participated in cybersecurity awareness month in the past i mean we've tried to we put out stuff on during the year uh about like this, the smart speaker or, or or the connected car. We've tried to we try to then renew that 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 interest and, and reinvigorate uh, it during cybersecurity month. So mostly we talk to the media and try to uh, reaffirm what we found during the year uh, about cybersecurity breaches. This last report that you had that you said this autos report was that specifically to align with cybersecurity awareness month, or did it just happen to come out in October? I honestly don't remember. <laughs> I can tell you the report that we are going to put out next week is aligned with Cybersecurity Month, and uh, it is the update on that report. The report was called Kill Switch, how your connected car is a danger and what you can do to stop it. That was two years ago. This report we're putting out now is specifically designed to go out at Cybersecurity Month. It's, it's, the, it's the Hack 10, the, 
the connected cars and 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 um, and how your model of your car can, can be hacked. And with the the hack that we performed on a major car model is a video that we're going to be putting on YouTube. And we're going to not tell the car maker how it was done. We're going to see if they can find it because the car makers often put out these bug bounties and pay people for the information. These white hat hackers get paid to, to turn over these information about how these companies can be infected with malware. And we're not doing that. We're trying to prove the, the threat and the peril and seeing if the company itself can figure it out and put an end to the security breach. Do you know if other folks take that same approach? That's the first time I've heard of that and, and working somewhere where, you know, bug bounties are such a common part of life, mm -hmm. of, of our engineers' lives and their, their outside work. I'm just curious. I've never heard that before. Do you know of other folks who do a similar approach? No, no. All of them are white hat hackers. They all turn over the information to the companies and have the companies patch it before they make the, you know, there's some groups of hackers, particularly in China, that have hacked BMWs, have hacked Teslas, and and they turn it over to the company, work with the company to fix the problems, and then like six months or a year later, turn over that information at a conference along with BMW or, or you know, just, just so they're all very careful not to put a vulnerability into the public domain, which we think is dangerous because while it takes some research talent and some money to find a vulnerability, you know, there are foreign governments, foreign agents who would love to find a way to hack our, we're talking about fleet-wide hacks, all the hacks now that can be done. If you can do it to one car, you can do it to any of them because they're they're connected. And those become fleet-wide hacks. And a lot of countries who are willing to sponsor such a hack. So I think it's it's truly dangerous not to get these companies to do better security by design. All of these companies, they, they wait for someone to find a vulnerability, then they pay them off and they fix it. That's a terrible way to do this because we need security by design where we have the design to prevent the malware. And the companies don't do that. There is no security by design. They need to do air gap technology between the safety critical systems of the car and the wireless connections, but it's too, it's too enticing for them to want to be able to sell the fact that you can remote start your car from a cell phone, which is where all these cars are going. Mm -hmm. And when you can do that, you have to have the safety critical systems, the brakes, the engine connected to the wireless carrier. And if you can start a car from any cell phone in America through an app, you know, then anyone can break in to a car through that same method. And, and that security by design is what we need to get to. Instead, these companies rely on the white hackers. And we're just waiting for the day when some hostile actor, we're not hostile, but we're, we're, mm. we're not going to tell the company uh, what vulnerability we had. We're waiting for the day when some white hat hacker uh, is not a white hat. And then if it happens, the companies are going to be shocked and unfortunately lives are going to be lost and we're going to have to have this, this vehicle security by design conversation. From what you were saying there, right, just the conversation itself, right, that, we're, that you're trying to move folks into not having white hat hackers fix the vulnerabilities that are in there, but to take more upfront responsibility, have the security by design. And what I'm getting at here is that is that, that conversation already as part of something, right, that, that is happening during Cybersecurity Awareness Month is so much more advanced than what I think, you know, I said at the top of the show, which is like, this began as something which was similar in concept to telling people to replace the batteries in their smoke alarms. Like, those are easy, simple things that people can do, 30 seconds. And what I'm curious about here is, from your perspective, has, has your work, has it gotten 
more difficult? Has it gotten more nuanced, more intricate? How has it changed? Because now the consumer has to do, it's, it feels like a million things, you know, to, to do something like protect their privacy online. They have to do a litany of, you know, management of, of their settings, of downloading add-ons, you know, tracker blockers. And so, yeah, I'm just getting back to that. How has the work changed for you, you know, over, over like a decade and a half? Well, the burden has gone to the consumer. It has become more complicated to try to protect people's privacy, to protect their security. And the companies have unfortunately gone to the lowest common denominator of doing it cheap and easy, not safe. And then if they get sued, it's an arbitration, they pay off the plaintiff and it's done. I think we, you know, we're really concerned, for instance, with the automobile industry, they're treating this automobile like it's, it's like it's a cell phone. The level of security on these automobiles is like a cell phone. And cell phones are not secure. So we are concerned. And uh, Cybersecurity Month, for us at least, is an opportunity to, to raise the stakes, to show how dangerous it is, and to make people panic because that's what's going to get uh, some change from the industry. Do you ever worry about undue panic? Do you ever have conversations about, you know, maybe this doesn't rise to the level of panic? That was something that also was brought up on the last interview I had, which is, you know, you don't want to make people afraid of everything because then they'll fear sort of nothing, right? Just this exhaustion. And so because you brought that up, hey, this, this word panic, I, I just want to know how you folks measure that, how you folks make sure that, you know, kind of lighting people up is, is the right response for a, a targeted issue. Well, I think on the connected car, it's, it's warranted because everybody sees the convenience and the dealers all push the convenience of starting your car remotely and no one sees the other side, which is it can be hacked. And if it's hacked, it's going to be hacked on a fleet-wide basis. And if the cars are hacked on a fleet-wide basis and there's a malicious actor, a lot of people are going to die. Now, it would take a lot of money to get that done. It would, you know, a, a government would have to make itself the target of the U.S. retaliation, but it's very possible that it could happen. And, and, and we want people to panic because we want them to think about introducing the idea that um, car companies should have a kill switch, a opportunity to have that internet connection to the safety critical systems thrown off, turned off when they don't want it on. And also, if there were a fleet-wide hack, it'd be really hard. You know, think about it. American transportation would ground to a halt the next day. We're trying to have forethought. And, and unfortunately, um, people haven't thought about it enough. I wanted to wrap up and ask you, sort of ideally, what would you like to see from Cybersecurity Awareness Month? Again, for the consumer, and, and that could be, you know, more integrated partnerships with other nonprofits, uh, maybe nonprofits that aren't directly consumer related, right? People can sort of name a few off the top of their head. There's Consumer Reports, right? There's a couple of others. Um, and so I wondered, you know, ideally, you know, what does this month look like for you? Is it is it hosting in-person events, you know, when coronavirus is over? Is it, you know, releasing reports that you folks already do that that get the press coverage that they deserve? What does it look like? Well, ideally, I'd like to see a cybersecurity reform every cybersecurity month <laughs> because we need these reforms. We work with Senator Markey, Senator Blumenthal, to raise the issues with NHTSA, for instance, on the connected cars. We want NHTSA just to get reporting for when there are hacks. They don't get reporting from the car companies. There are hacks. There have been hacks reported to securities in the Securities Exchange Commission to shareholders, and NHTSA has no reports of them, and NHTSA is not about to demand those reports. So next Cybersecurity Month, 
I'd like to see we have a reform, a reform bill introduced to require mandatory reporting of hacks. I'd like to see more action and less talk. Can you help us also just understand what NHTSA is, what their role is in all of this, and, and, why, and why they aren't asking for those reports? The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration is in charge of the safety of our vehicles, and, and they're not asking for those reports because they don't see a defect in the car. They haven't defined a defect in a car uh, on a cyber security basis in the same way that they've defined a defect subject to a recall in a mechanical issue. During a mechanical issue, the companies now have to tell NHTSA they have to issue recall notices. NHTSA has yet to define a susceptibility to malware, a cybersecurity attack as a defect in the car. And when they do that, then there has to be mandatory reporting to NHTSA. And then when NHTSA has it, if it's not fixable, or if perhaps it's systemic, NHTSA should be able to order some type of change to the structure of the car, hopefully security by design. We're hoping that'll change on January 5th or 20th. And we're going to have a, a new day at the agency. And hopefully, if the Senate changes hands and Senator Blumenthal and Senator Markey are in the majority, uh, they'll be demanding that and they'll actually have, uh, have someone returning their calls and their letters. We, Mark, Markey and Blumenthal wrote two letters to NHTSA before we got an answer from NHTSA. And NHTSA's answer was not on point. I'm glad that you directly tied that so much of this also is related to what is happening in Congress. Because it is. And it sometimes feels unfair that, again, a lot of the burden has been placed on the consumer. And yet the decisions still, you know, the broad system-based decisions are beyond their grasp. And so I just think that's, that's an important thing to point out, right? We're, we're being tasked with more. But sometimes it feels like our voices for, again, system-wide changes are being unheard. They're going ignored. And that- we have few people working for us, too. I mean, <laughs> the federal agencies in charge with cybersecurity have, 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 have shut down and re- relinquished their responsibility for it over the last four years. And when you don't have government on your side, you're really disarmed. Jamie, I just wanted to thank you again for being on today's show. My pleasure. Thanks for doing it. I appreciate all the awareness you raise. To our listeners at home, We'll talk to you again in two weeks when we offer you an inside look at a cybersecurity webinar here at Malwarebytes, hosted for our employees, featuring Chief Information Security Officer John Donovan and a director of Malwarebytes Labs, Adam Kajawa.